0: While uh, people are still getting settled settled down, uh, let's open with a word of prayer. Our righteous Father, we give you thanks for allowing us to gather here together to um, learn about your truth, Father. We ask that you would open our eyes to see the truth and open our hearts to treasure the truth. It's in the name of your Son that we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so today we will be going over chapter 22 of the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, and that chapter is entitled, Of Religious Worship and the Sabbath. And um, before we begin, and this is not a question on the sheet, I just wanted to ask it and get people's uh, responses. Um, Is the worship of God important, and why is it that we worship God? Does anybody want to... Try to give an answer to that. First of all, he says worship. Yep.
1: On That's
0: exactly. And it is important. It you. Mm. you don't need a more complex answer than that. Anybody else? Yeah. So I broke it out into basically uh, mm-hmm. two categories of why we should worship God. Uh, the first category is because God is our Creator. Everything that we have, everything that we are, ultimately comes from God. We owe Him everything, and thus, because we owe Him everything, we should give thanks and praise to Him. If we if we see things that are amazing, He's the one that designed it, and uh, we should be in awe of that and all of Him. Uh, for scriptural support, there's Revelation four eleven. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. So here praise is being given to God because he created all things. And then while every single person, regardless of whether they are saved or not, um, is obligated to worship God, For the Christian, we have an additional reason on top of all that to worship God. And that is because he is our redeemer, that he saved us. Psalm uh, 118, starting at verse 14. The Lord is my strength and song and has become my salvation. The voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tabernacles of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord doth valiantly. And then skipping to verse 21. I will praise thee for thou hast heard me and art become my salvation. So we um, above any of the the rest of humanity have all the more reason to worship our God because he's saved us from the the righteous punishment that we deserve. We deserve um, not to be saved. We actively demerited salvation. And yet God has seen fit to redeem us. So we owe him great thanks for that. And ultimately, um, salvation and praise of God is not necessarily separable. For example, when God saves the uh, Israelites out of um, out of uh, Egypt, um, he tells he tells Moses to tell Pharaoh and thou shalt say to him, the Lord God of the Hebrews hath sent me unto thee, saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. And behold, hitherto thou wouldst not hear. So. Not only is God saving merely for our sakes, although he does save for our sake, obviously, he's also saving that we would come and serve him. Now, serve in this context means essentially worship. We call the worship service a service. It's the same underlying idea there. So we are not merely saved uh, for ourselves. We are also saved unto the uh, worship of God. And um, ultimately, a very key aspect of this is the fact that God is holy. He's not to be treated as a common thing. So we are we are to treat him as he should be treated. We're not to treat him as something, oh, you know, I don't need to actually pay attention to God. I don't need to, to worship him as he's worthy of being worshipped. No, he is holy, and he will make sure that he is treated as he should be. Um, so ultimately, with that um, in the back of... Uh, Back of everyone's mind, I want to um, basically have a a, one question sort of governing the uh, the thoughts behind this discussion, and that's: Do we take the worship of God seriously? And I mean more in the context of we as a church, do we take it seriously? Because you will see out there, there's a lot of people that don't take worship seriously. Not in the sense that they don't go out to worship, but often the worship is not primarily about God, and we as a church, want to make sure that if this is important, that we take it seriously and we're very purposeful about um, how we worship and is it pleasing to God? So um, for a brief outline, question one of, um, of the question sheet, an outline of this chapter can be broken into five parts on worship. Uh, part one is its regulative principle, and that's paragraph one. Part two is its uh, restricted presentation, and that's paragraph two. Part three is its constituent elements, and that's paragraphs three through five. Uh, Part four is its appropriate locale, paragraph six. And part five is its appointed day, and that's paragraphs seven through eight. And um, because this is a two-week lesson, we're going to save paragraphs seven and eight for next week, and we're only going to be really dealing with paragraphs one through six. And uh, the, the focus of this uh, this chapter in the confession is really uh, uh, new covenant worship and what that looks like and what we're supposed to do. And of course, it would be helpful if I actually defined what worship is. Yes. <laughs> yes. So uh, according to the Oxford English Dictionary to worship is to show reverence and adoration for a deity and honor with religious rites. And then ultimately, the word worship actually comes from an old English word pronounced worth skype. And that's uh, that had the meaning of worthiness or acknowledgement of worth. So when we are worshiping God, what we're trying to do is demonstrate that he is worthy to acknowledge his worthiness and proclaim it. Now, um, the next question would be question two on the sheet. I'm actually going to save that to the end as I think it will probably be a good way of applying what we learned or looking at the implications of what we learned. So I'm going to uh, skip that from now and just go to uh, paragraph three or uh, question three, excuse me. So uh, question three is briefly describe the historical background of paragraph one. Um, So could I get someone to read paragraph one real quick?
2: The light of nature shows that there is a God who hath lordship and sovereignty over all, is just, good, and not good unto all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart and all the soul and with all the might. But the acceptable way of worshipping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imagination and devices of men, nor the suggestions of Satan, under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures.
0: So this paragraph brings out an important distinction that you'll actually see constantly throughout the Scriptures and throughout our confession, that the light of nature is sufficient to show certain truths, but not all truths. So in this case, the the paragraph is talking about um, while nature says that we should worship God, it doesn't actually prescribe the means or what we are supposed to do in that worship. We need a direct revelation from God in order to know what is pleasing to him when it comes to uh, uh, worship. We have to have a word from him, essentially. And actually, I'm probably just going to have us read paragraphs two through six, um, just to get those in here. Would somebody like to read paragraph two? Okay.
1: Religious worship is to be given to God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and to him alone, not to angels, saints, or any other creatures. And since the fall, not without a mediator, nor in the mediation of any other but Christ
0: alone. So I'm not going to spend too much time on this point, but uh, this paragraph correctly points out that we need a mediator in order to approach God. Um, Without one, our sin, which keeps us impure, um, it keeps us impure and a perfectly holy God cannot be worshipped by that which is impure. It will always dishonor him. We need a covering for our sin to even approach God in worship. And Christ applies that. If you're in Christ and approaching God through him, your sin has been atoned for and you've been credited righteousness, the righteousness by which to approach the father. Um, so this should this alone should do away with any suggestion that those of other religions are able to worship God just in their own way. That's a, that's a belief you'll see often in the um, in mainstream evangelicalism or whatever. That oh people, of this religion, yeah, they're not necessarily completely correct, but they're still worshiping God, and that's not true. We need to approach God through His appointed means, His Son. We cannot approach Him in any other way and be acceptable. To him. Uh could I get somebody to read paragraph three?
3: Prayer for thanksgiving to one part of natural worship is by God required of all men, and that it may be accepted it is to
2: be made in the name of the Son by the help of the Spirit according to his will. Understanding, reverence, humility, fervency, faith, laws, and perseverance, and with others in a known tongue.
0: So this is an important point because often we don't think about prayer as worship, but it actually it really is. Going back to the definition of um, worship being the acknowledgement of worthiness of someone, uh, when you're praying to God, you are at the very least implicitly acknowledging His worthiness that. He is able and willing to help you when you pray. Um, and that's giving glory to him. Now, also in your prayers, if you explicitly give thanks to him, that's, uh, that's also obviously very explicit worship. But at the very least, when you pray and ask, you're acknowledging your need of him. And uh, that's to his glory. And then again, we see that um, this is to be made in the name of the son, whether explicitly or implicitly. We need to be approaching God through his son. And that lets even the unbelievers around us know that when we think we approach God or when we approach God, we think we need the son. And that's something that they need to know. Could I get someone to read paragraph four?
3: Prayers to be made for things lawful, and for all sorts of men living or that shall live hereafter, but not for the dead, nor for those of whom it may be known that they have sinned and unto death.
0: So this paragraph is really um, to combat the Roman Catholic belief of prayers for the dead um, because we believe that Jesus Christ um, atoned completely for all of our sin. Uh, after one dies, um, they're, they're either going to heaven and hell at that point. We don't no, believe in an intermediate state like purgatory where they're still paying off at least some part, they're atoning for some part of their sins. Um, so this is, This is. Just ridiculous. I don't
1: know.
0: They try to they try to make a distinction that Jesus paid for essentially part of the sin, but not like the temporal punishments of it. But ultimately, at the end of the day, what you're saying there is that Jesus didn't entirely pay for your sins. At least, not all the punishment for it. And that's uh, that's not that's not correct at all. Um. So that's an uh, important thing to bring out that we don't believe that after death people need our help any longer. They've either gone to heaven or they're uh, awaiting the final judgment. Um, yes. Maybe it's covered
1: farther uh, on, but does this include uh, like how Catholics or others might pray to uh, like a dead saint?
0: So I would say yes. Um, Although the the thrust is definitely, um, but not for the dead. It's not praying to the dead, but for the dead. Um, but I actually don't remember where that would be covered in the confession, although I'm sure it is at some point. But yes, obviously we would also believe that we don't pray to the dead either. That's explicitly forbidden by scripture. Or at the very least implicitly forbidden by scripture. Yeah. We have we have no scriptural warrant to believe Mary could hear us when we pray, nor that um, she's a mediator to us in that way. Christ is the only mediator for us. Well, she's in heaven, and she's <clears throat> her son, mm-hmm. or the son. <laughs> oh, in this case, both. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I would say... She's not about us. Paragraph
4: three says prayer prayer you know, with Thanksgiving being one part of that, worship. So prayer is part of worship mm-hmm. and worship is to be given to
2: God, the father the son, Holy spirit and to him alone. Mm-hmm. Prayer is to be
0: to him alone. Exactly. No, that's, that's a really good point. Yeah. Because we do acknowledge that prayer is a form of worship and we do not want to worship men, whether they be dead or alive. Um, could I get somebody to read paragraph five?
3: The reading of the scriptures, preaching and hearing the word of God, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in our hearts to the Lord, as also the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper, are all parts of religious worship to God, to be performed in obedience to him, with understanding, faith, reverence, and godly fear. Moreover, solemn humiliation, with fastings and thanksgivings, upon special occasions, ought to be used in Holy and
0: man. So this paragraph lays out what we believe to be the uh, major elements of worship underneath the new covenant. You have basically all the, the um, components of our worship service, reading of scripture, preaching, hearing the word of God, singing. And then you have the two sacraments, administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And then it uh, goes on to describe how we're to worship in what um, in what manner. So you're supposed to do it in faith, reverence, godly fear. Solemn humiliation. And then it goes into uh, private forms of worship, not necessarily corporate, but fasting, uh, thanksgiving, and then um, holy and uh, just sorry, just fasting and thanksgivings there. Um, And then could I get somebody to read paragraph six? Neither prayer nor any other part of religious worship is now under the gospel, is now under the gospel, tied unto or made acceptable by any place in which it is performed
3: or towards which it is directed. But God is to be worshipped everywhere in spirit and in truth as in private families daily and in secret each one by himself. So more solemnly in the public assemblies which are not carelessly
2: nor willfully to be neglected or forsaken when God by his word or providence calls thereunto. unto.
0: So this is another paragraph that's really um, combating a Roman Catholic idea uh, because in Rome, at least at the time, although you really do still have it, um, uh, they would believe that praying in certain holy sites um, that would make your prayers of more effect or you would get something um, additional out. If you go took a pilgrimage to wherever and you prayed there, you get time off in purgatory or whatever. And this is uh, in contrast to the New Testament um teaching that uh, God is to be worshiped anywhere and in spirit and truth um, contrary to the Old Testament where there was one singular spot where God was to be worshipped he is now able to be worshiped uh, wherever and whenever and for a proof text of this um, John 4 um, this uh, woman of Samaria talking with Jesus the Samaritans were of a slightly different religion than Judaism it was related to Judaism but it had uh, certain corruptions that entered into it. And she says to Jesus, our fathers worshiped in this mountain, this being a a mountain in Samaria. And ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And Jesus said unto her, woman, believe me the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain, nor yet at Jerusalem, worship the father. Ye worship, ye know not what we know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. So Jesus is creating a contrast here. Um, There was the old temporal way of worshipping in Jerusalem, but now, contrasting, you're going to be able to worship in spirit and in truth. So those are not identical things there. And then uh, we will say paragraph seven and eight for next week. So going back to question three, briefly describe the historical background of paragraph one. We read that. And ultimately, the historical background for this paragraph is the dispute between Anglicans and Puritans over worship. So when the Anglican Church broke away from the Roman Catholic Church, um, there were essentially two parties that formed in how to Best proceed um, with uh, with the uh, Reformation of that church, while the Anglicans wanted, obviously, uh, Reformation ideals of justification by faith alone. Um, they kept uh, most of the um, the elements, I guess you could say, of um, Roman Catholic worship. They were still it was still a very Roman Catholic setup and they kept the church structure essentially, too, because you still had a hierarchy of bishops. The Puritans, in contrast to this, wanted to purify the um, the Anglican Church of what they felt were inappropriate and unbiblical holdovers from the Roman Catholic Church. And that's ultimately where they got their name from. They were called Puritans because they wanted to purify the Church of England. And we as Reformed Baptists are in that broad stream of Puritanism. So just to give a little bit of um, historical proof for that, Article 20 of the Church of England's 39 article states, the church hath power to decree rites or ceremonies and authority in controversies of the faith, and yet it is not lawful for the church to ordain anything contrary to God's word written. So here they're saying the church, that being the Church of England, has a power to decree rites or ceremonies and obviously rites or ceremonies that would be a part of your worship. So they have a right to decree to decree these things in worship. And then James Bannerman in contrast to this explaining the Puritan view, in the case of the Church of England, its doctrine is regard to church power in the worship of God is the uh, its doctrine in regard to the church power and the worship of God is, that it has the right to decree everything except what is forbidden in the word of God. In the case of our own church, its doctrine in reference to church power in the worship of God is that it has a right to decree nothing except what is expressly or by implication is enjoined by the word of God. Um, So this is really going to answer question four. Uh, Describe and illustrate the differences between the Puritans and Anglicans on the regulative principle of worship. So the Puritan view is what's called the regulative principle of worship, and that is that we regulate our worship by what's contained in the scriptures. So for the Puritan view of worship, true worship is only what is commanded in scripture, and false worship is anything outside that which is commanded. Whereas for the Anglicans, true worship is what is commanded plus anything not expressly forbidden, so the church has the right to uh create new forms of worship as long as it is not expressly forbidden by God. And false worship is only what is expressly uh, condemned or forbidden by God. So the the distinction there is, are we able to do things um, that are not expressly forbidden, but are also not commanded in worship? And the Puritan view would say, no, we are to regulate our worship only by what is contained in the, the scriptures. And I do want to make it clear that um, when we say command, we can also mean by example. Um, We'll get into this a little bit more next week when we talk about the Sabbath. But um, there's no express command to meet on Sunday for worship in the New Testament. But we do have examples of the church meeting on Sunday. So therefore, we conclude that it is appropriate to come together on Sunday rather than Saturday for worship a godly example in this case um, is sufficient to let us know that um, God approves of w- the worship in the way that it's illustrated. So command can also mean command by example. And um, pragmatically speaking, before we go into the, uh, the evidence uh, for the, the Puritan view, um, which of these views would we think would be more likely to please God? Would we think that the one that only tries to regulate by what he specifically said would be more likely to be pleasing or the one that allows things that are not necessarily forbidden to be, um, to be added to worship, would that be more likely to please him? I would think it would be obvious that if we're regulating solely by what God said, it is at the very least more likely to be pleasing to him because we won't accidentally do something that is unpleasing to him. And uh, Waldron provides a little uh, parable uh, to illustrate this. Um, Two builders are building the temple of God. One, the Anglican must use the materials of the word of God, but he has no blueprint. He can go outside the word of God. Um, So at the very least, he only has part of a blueprint Um, and he may use other materials if he sees fit. Um, Mr. Puritan uh, may only use the materials of the word of God, but he has a blueprint because he's following specifically what the scriptures have said. So you're going to get two very different temples in that regard. And one of them uh, may not be um, what God intended there. So uh, moving on to question five, what are some major lines of argument for the Puritan view of the regulative principle? Discuss three important scriptures which teach the regulative principle. So ultimately, there are uh, four arguments for the regulative principle. The first is God has the right to determine how he is to be worshipped and not man. Um, It's arrogance on man's part to think that he knows better than God and that um, he can determine how God should be worshipped. So um, God is the one who sets the uh, as he is the one who's worthy. He sets the requirements of uh, how he is to be worshipped. And we're um, not to be not to think that we know better than God and how he should be worshipped. Point two. Uh, the introduction of extra biblical practices into worship tends to nullify and undermine God's appointed worship. So I'm sure you can think of examples, uh, but the one that at least springs to my mind is the rosary. In Roman Catholicism, you have a hyper focus on praying the rosary. You'll see the bumper stickers everywhere. Pray the rosary, pray the rosary, which this is not something that's commanded in scripture anywhere. And while there's not as necessarily anything wrong in of itself with using prayer beads as a, as a means of praying, you will note that um, this leads to a lot of um, repetitious prayers, and that is explicitly condemned in Scripture. Matthew 6, 7, this is Jesus speaking, but when ye pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking, So when you have people constantly praying the same thing over and over again with the rosary, it's it's in violation of that. So you've had something that was not necessarily explicitly condemned for scripture, but it's moved into that um, spot. Yes. Have you ever uh,
1: have you ever heard people praying? Yes.
0: Yes. Did it just make you want to leave? Yes. I, it freaked
1: me out. I was like, "Man, I'm out here." Yes, it was so weird. There's, there was there's something very wrong about
0: it. Yeah, there was one time we were at the abortion clinic witnessing, and they just started screaming the rosary at the uh, the abortion work, clinic workers. So yeah, I was like, "I don't know what you're trying to accomplish here," but um, anyway, um, so yeah. Uh, ultimately things that aren't prescribed by God tend to lead to weird areas because the scripture hasn't commanded them so um, it leaves man free to go in places that um, he shouldn't necessarily because ultimately the heart of man is corrupt and we are inclined to go um, to do things that we shouldn't Um, so it's better to stay within the strict bounds of the word of God where we know things are clearly right or clearly wrong um Argument number three, um, it actually questions the wisdom of Christ and the sufficiency of scripture when you hold to the other uh, position, because ultimately, Christ um, has commanded how worship is to be done. So if you're going above and beyond that, what you're saying is Christ didn't give us enough. He didn't outline enough of how God is to be worshipped. So. You're calling into uh, question his wisdom. And ultimately, you're calling into question the sufficiency of scripture, because if it's not laid out in scripture, then you need something additional to scripture in order for God to be worshipped appropriately. And that's going to lead to all sorts of other problems, because if worship is very important and the scriptures aren't sufficient in there, what else are they not sufficient in? Are they not sufficient to tell us how to be saved? Do we need additional information in order to be saved? Um it's a it's an error that's going to lead to all sorts of major, major issues. And then, of course, last argument, most importantly of all, the Bible condemns worship that isn't commanded by God. So that that uh should be all you need right there. Um, could I get Deuteronomy somebody to read Deuteronomy 12 uh, 29 through 32? When the
3: Lord thy God shall cut off the nations from before thee wither. Thou goest to possess them, and thou succeedest them, and dwellest in their land. Take heed to thyself, that thou be not snared by following them, after that they be destroyed from before thee, and that thou inquire not after their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods? Even so will I do likewise. Thou shalt not do so unto the Lord thy God. For every abomination to the Lord which he hated have they done unto their gods. For even their sons and their daughters they have burned in the fire to their gods. What thing soever I command you, observe to do it. Thou shalt not add thereto nor diminish from it.
0: So here God is explicitly condemning going and looking at other people's practices for how to worship him. He's like, no, don't look at them. They have no idea what they're doing. Not only are they worshiping false gods, they're doing abominable things um, when they do it. Whatsoever thing I command you, you will do it. You shall not add to that and you shall not take away from that. So God is saying explicitly to the Israelites, "I've given you enough. Do what I've commanded to you to. Don't take away from that, and don't add to it." Yes, Ben. I think
4: it's important that if you're working right at if you give
2: like the kind of Christian liberties and worship whatever you want. It can be in ways where you can be, you know, in Africa or in Asia or in America, and it's going to look really different. My parents to Malaysia. From pictures and videos, it looks extremely similar to what we do here, because they're going by the book. Um, we also have an example. It's in the Old Testament, but Aaron's son, uh often extinguishes fires, doesn't explicitly say not to offer strange
0: fires. You're you're getting into my next example right there. <laughs> Stealing my uh my uh talk there. That's fine. Um. Uh, Um, but no, it's, it's interesting. I was talking with your dad before, uh, before this, and he was saying that he wants our church to be, uh, structured in such a way that if the apostle Paul was, uh, teleported from first, second century or first century, um, Judea to here, while he might not know our language, um, he would recognize this is a Christian worship service. That's ideally what we want to do there. But, um, seeing as, uh, you uh, brought up Leviticus 10, one through 3. Would you like to read it for us there, Ben? <laughs> <laughs> uh Then Nadab
2: and Abidu, the king of the each took his censer and put fire in it and put an incense on it, and offered propane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses
0: said to Aaron, this, this is what the Lord spoke, saying. By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy, and for all the people I must be glorified. To you. Oh, just three. Okay. Yeah. Um, So yeah, as Ben uh, was alluding to before, while there is an explicit prohibition against Aaron the high priest from offering strange incense, and that's in Exodus 39, there's no explicit prohibition against the other priests from doing so. But just because it wasn't mentioned doesn't mean that it was uh, therefore not forbidden. As we've uh, seen, God didn't command this. Ultimately, when it says profane fire in his translation or strange fire in mine, that's a, that's a burning of incense that wasn't specifically offered by God. We don't know precisely what it was that they had they'd offered, but it was something not commanded. And ultimately, that's what... Um, God condemns them for. Uh, it says specifically, which he commanded them not. It doesn't say which he had forbidden because he hadn't explicitly forbidden it. It's which he commanded them not. They went beyond what God had commanded them, and that's why they were, uh, they were punishment, punished. Um, so if you want to look at it this way, the Anglicans and those who uh, do not hold to the regular principle are correct when they say we should not do anything expressly forbidden in Scripture. Um, it's just that what is not expressly, uh, commanded is forbidden by the scriptures. So they're wrong in that aspect to say, oh, but if it's not commanded, we can still do it. No, the scriptures say you don't do what's not commanded. You only do what's commanded. Yes, Matt. Yeah, now
3: we have, um, the substance of and parts of our worship in the scriptures, and I think one of the very concerning things about angels is you allow man to kind of have some free, Inserting stuff that isn't implicitly in the text and i mean it's funny with, with i think Waldron's example of the building is perfect but um one thing i would also add is that with
2: the materials they're putting in there those materials are from them that mm-hmm. can be you changed and removed and the building can change over time as ours is more
4: consistent mm-hmm. it's more um it's what the building is intended to look like through christ and what he said so it's even changing throughout time.
0: Mm-hmm. No, that's that's a if good having, thought.
3: If you're adding to worship what you want to do, so except not worshiping God, but worshiping God. You're doing what you're doing. Yeah. You want to do something that pleases somebody, you do what they want
0: you to do. Yeah. yeah. And you, you do see that a lot. If you ever go to somebody and, um, and you talk to them about worship, and it's like, oh, well, you shouldn't do this because, because God doesn't say to do it. And they sort of come back at you It's like, yeah, but I feel closer to God or whatever when I do this. Yeah, I feel. So it's it's really about your feeling and not God. Well, we should not be emotionalists while we're worshiping. um, It's not about us. So if we don't feel emotionally where we should be when we're worshiping, that's fine. We're commanded to worship anyway because it's about God and his worthiness. It's not about us. If it's about a feeling in you, you are ultimately worshiping yourself, and um, you need to repent of that idolatry. Um, and then finally, because those were both Old Testament examples, and I know there are some that would want to make an argument that in the New Testament era, we are more free in what we're permitted to uh, worship, or how we're permitted to worship, because we have the Spirit. And obviously, the Spirit can lead us in new ways that are, are pleasing to God, Um Paul says in uh, Colossians 2, starting at verse 20, Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of this world, why, as though living in the world, are you subject to ordinances? Touch not, taste not, handle not, which are all to perish with the using, after the commandments and doctrines of men, which things have indeed a uh, show of wisdom and will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. So here... Paul is condemning those that have made these external rules. Oh, don't touch that! Don't eat that! Whatever it might be, and um, that might, to a worldly sense, seem very wise. It might seem uh, like, oh, look at how uh, holy these people are—they won't eat X food. They command not to eat X food. Clearly, that should please God, right? They're they're essentially fasting, but no, it doesn't please God because God didn't command that. God didn't put a restriction on the church, um, in that way. So what essentially you're saying is I know better than God. Um, now, obviously we would, um, understand that if somebody wants to personally fast for something that that is perfectly appropriate. Uh, we are given the command in scripture that, um, you can fast if you, if you feel it necessary, but to impose that as this is what you must do as a part of worship is incorrect. That is above and beyond what God has said. You had something, Ben?
2: Uh, yeah, so it seems like how oh, Anglicans have the freedom of worshiping how they please, but in reality they have the freedom to add restrictions and ceremonies, which is more settling for the their priests and whatnot than it is for the people who are actually going to worship. So it's, mm-hmm. it's not like, oh, Anglicans are free to worship how they want. No, Anglicans are told to worship exactly how their priests tell them to, which is like restricting, like,
0: yeah, because ultimately when they say that church has the ability to decree these things, when they say church they don't think about it in the same way because we would say, well, not always, they don't always think about it in the same way because we would say the church is just all all the believers, right? But when they're saying church in that context, what they really mean is the church's leadership. The bishops, the archbishop, they are the ones uh, imposing this worship. Matt? Another thing that. Really important to remember. Um, Pastor Steve several sermons ago
3: pointed out that as preachers, we need to worship. It's we're made to worship. And if we don't worship God, we're going to be worshiping something else. But it's not a side issue. And in mainstream evangelical uh, context, you see just people having this lackadaisical attitude about it. But no, this is important. This is what we're made to do. Yes. But it's very very important.
0: So. Yep yeah as i I alluded to earlier um with the salvation of the israel of the israelites out of egypt it wasn't merely for their own salvation it was to worship so even when we we are saved we are saved to worship that's ingrained in our purpose for why we were created um we will glorify god um all right and then we can uh move on to question uh six here um What important clarification or qualification of the regulative principles is stated in the confession and where? So to preface this, a lot of times you'll have people on the other side of this debate basically doing a sort of gotcha, um, like uh, gotcha um, example. Um, For example, one time I heard a man relaying a story of when he attended a church and the pastor said, essentially, we don't do anything here that isn't in the New Testament. Which is a it's a good policy to have. We're trying to regulate based on what the New Testament says. We don't want to add anything that's not there. And later the man talked to the pastor and he he had his gotcha moment where he pointed out that someone had turned on the air conditioning uh, in the church. And obviously that's not found anywhere in the New Testament. So does the fact that we do some things not commanded um, in the New Testament, like use air conditioning or have pews or have windows because none of those things are explicitly mentioned. Um, uh, does the fact that we do those things make us hypocrites? Does it mean that the regular principle is actually impossible to follow? Uh, what are your thoughts, Ben? depends on what you
4: define this worship, so I'm
2: mm-hmm. going to depending on the air conditioning is corrected as worship to not. So the intention. if you're like going over to the air conditioning
3: unit, like using it for worship somehow, yeah, that would be wrong. Yeah. but If we didn't have recognition, we'd worship anyway.
0: Exactly. just
3: be a little harder. We'd just sweat more.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so ultimately that gets into the distinction between the elements of worship and the circumstances of worship. The elements of worship are the ceremonies or the things that we're doing that are prescribed by God to worship him. So that would include prayer or uh, the Lord's Supper or the preaching of the word. Those are the elements of worship. And that's in contrast to the circumstances of worship. I can have the, uh, the Lord's Supper in this building, or we can have it in a field. If we were under a church under persecution, we can pray here or we can pray at home. Um, the pastor can pray for us or somebody else can pray for us if we determine uh, that's what we want to do. Um, so those are the circumstances that surround worship, but they're not actually the elements of worship um, itself. And for biblical proof text, um, we have 1 Corinthians 14.40. And um, this comes after Paul has gotten done letting the Corinthians know that their worship has been disorderly and not uh, correct. He says at the very end of all this, let all things be done decently and in order. Now, you can read the rest of 1 Corinthians 14, but Paul doesn't lay out in meticulously meticulous detail what specifically An orderly church service would look like. He does mention some things like um, don't speak in tongues without an interpreter, but he doesn't lay out specifically every little bit of it. He just gives the command, let all things be done orderly. So we can understand from this that sometimes there's a general principle that's given, although the fine details may be left up to us in order to fulfill. And in fact, our confession uh, says this, it's not in uh, chapter 22, it's actually in chapter one, paragraph six and I'm starting in the middle of the paragraph here and that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and the government of the church common to human actions and societies, which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence, according to the general rules of the word, which are always to be observed. So if God lays out a general rule for us, we are in a sense, as long as we do not contradict the scriptures free to implement it, how, um, we think would best honor him. Um, and that's not contradictory to the regulative principle because we aren't talking about inventing new ceremonies. We're not talking about inventing new ways of worship. We're just implementing the, uh, the worship that God has already commanded in a, in a way that we think is honoring to him. So the issue is recognizing that there's actually a distinction there and not letting uh, those who would oppose the regulative principle conflate the two. Because the moment they conflated the two, they've won the argument, because there are some things that we need to know that just aren't commanded in Scripture. All right. So we will now circle back to question number two. And that is, what is the one significant addition which the authors of the Baptist Confession made to the Savoy Declaration? Briefly describe its probable significance. Um, so just by way of reminder, it's been repeated throughout all these uh, lectures, but um, just just as a reminder, uh, the London Baptist Confession of Faith was um, was um, made essentially by looking at the Westminster and the Savoy and two others and uh, using its wording um, to make a uh, it uh, to make um, a new confession, essentially. And that the purpose of this was to show the um, unity and disunity um, with the Presbyterian and Congregationalists, uh, our, our Congregationalists and Presbyterian brothers. So where the wording is the same, you can know that, oh, the uh, Reformed Baptists are in agreement with uh, their pato baptist brethren on these sections. And where it differs, that's when you can see, oh, okay, so they had a, a slightly different nuance here. And in paragraph five, uh, that's where the, the real difference uh, comes into play. In the Westminster and Savoy, um, it read that uh, we were to uh, just sing psalms, whereas in um, the London Baptist, it says psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And uh, the probable reasoning for this is um, to distance, uh, probably it was to distance themselves from the exclusive solemnity position. Exclusive solemnity position is that it's only proper in the worship of God to sing the psalms, to sing the Psalter, and nothing else. So... In uh, all likelihood, it was to um, distance themselves from that. And then Sam Renahan actually pointed out that um, uh, this part is actually left intentionally vague. It just quotes um, Colossians 3.16 with psalms, uh, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. It doesn't go on to explain what that means. And um, he thinks that that was to allow for multiple views within the confession, because at the time there was actually a disagreement... On whether people should sing as a congregation at all. There was a view that um, because it says admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in our hearts to the Lord, the part that says singing with grace in our hearts, um, that faction took the idea that, well, we're not actually supposed to be singing aloud. It's sort of an internal spiritual thing. So it might have been left broad in that sense so that um, both. Um, views could subscribe to the confession simultaneously but ultimately that means that we have at least three views here um the exclusive psalmody position the position we would hold that um, psalms hymns and spiritual songs are all permissible in worship and then the idea that there's no singing permission permissible in worship and uh my question is does this diversity hurt our understanding of the worship uh the regular principle are some of these people not holding to the regular principle, or are they? Uh, what are your thoughts in regards to the regular principle to these positions? And I really wish Rowan was here, because he is actually exclusive psalmody, and I'm sure he would he would uh, give us something to say. It's
4: supposed to be
1: right there. over? Mm. Well, the it says all over the place that we're saying a joyful noise, to sing unto the Lord and to sing hallelujah mean, there's so many places where it tells us to sing to the Lord. It, it'd be kind of ridiculous for us to go. And then to so many of the hymns that are sung, even though they're not from Psalms per se, there's scripture in the majority of the hymns, and the hymns are a lot easier to remember than singing a song because of the melody and the tune and everything. For me, they are. Maybe not anybody else, but. Um, I can many times hear a hymn, and then oh, that's from you know that's in the Bible, that's in the mm-hmm. scriptures, and so I think the prayer part of it is paying attention to the words of what is sung, and that the words of scripture speak to your heart in hymns, as just like they do in psalms, even though every word is not God's word. Mm-hmm.
3: Just as we see um, men disagree with many other things in the Bible, and just how we don't see that and say, oh, therefore the Bible isn't clear about these doctrines, that doesn't undermine undermine the notion of the clarity of Scripture, Um, so too people disagreeing about the regular principle shouldn't bother us either. When you have sinful, fallible men interpreting Scriptures um, with imperfect knowledge, you'll have imperfect
4: conclusions.
3: But we know that we diligently consult the Word, that it is actually quite clear about uh, what the regulative principle allows us to do with worship and
0: what it doesn't. Agreed. And ultimately, all three of these groups are at least attempting to um, uphold the regulative principle. It's not that one of them has violated the regulative principle. It's, it really comes down to their interpretation of scripture might not be quite right. So we can all agree that, yes, our worship should be regulated by the word of God although we might disagree in uh, specific instances what the uh, word of God means there. It doesn't mean that we're necessarily in violation of the regulative principle, whereas someone who's just okay with, well, we can do whatever in worship, they are in violation of the regulative principle. It's a, it's a category distinction there. And uh, with that, I don't have anything else. So does anybody have any questions or comments they wanted to say?
1: And there are many different versions, and that's not to say any of them are wrong, but for me, the understanding is easier when I go back to the King mm-hmm. James Version or the New King James Version mm-hmm. than some of these other ones, because they'll say the script, same scripture, and I have to think several times, oh, what is he saying? Because it's, you know, it's, it's what you have learned from day one, mm-hmm. and, and I kind of think that's similar to singing. Something other than the psalms, mm-hmm. you know, in, in the wording alone and everything, it's just I think sometimes mm-hmm. easier to understand than a person. You know, you sing with your heart, and the message comes to you if it's God's word.
4: Mm-hmm. Uh, ben, I um, was kind of like trying to Google it really quick, but like, is there a place where David is dancing and singing mm-hmm. and sure. in
2: a kind of humiliating way? And like his wife or something is upset about it. Yep. And he's like, oh, I'm going to be, you know, more he-related than this. uh, It It seems like he's basically saying, like, I'm worshiping God through my song Mm singing. And uh, it's not bad. -hmm. I'm probably butchering
0: that. Well, so that I would call that more of an element of uh, uh, private worship. Yeah, because corporate corporate worship, while we are strictly told certain things, but in private worship, like, if you want to fast privately as worship to God, you're more than free to do so. That is, uh, that's that's um, between you and God, but it's um, it's different when you impose on the uh, on the body of Christ, no, you must do this as part of your worship, because God has not commanded that. Anything else?
3: There are certain elements we can all agree upon are essential elements of worship. Mm-hmm. You know, the word... The proper set, you know, the, the ordinances. Yep. You know, there, there are certain things we can all agree on. all Christians should be able to. Do that.
0: Exactly, or you would you would hope would all be able to agree on. And
3: if you, and if, you and if you leave any of those out, you got a problem. And if you add stuff, you got a problem mm-hmm.
0: either way. You had something, Andrew?
3: Yeah. Um, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is possible for doctrine, for proof, for correction. And righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Um, we use that term man of God colloquially today is just to just describe a Christian, but in Scripture it has a very specific man in mind. That is the minister set apart for God's word or a prophet in the Old Testament. And one of his chief responsibilities, his chief good works, is the ordering of the household of God and making sure that worship is, is done properly. So the Bible here is telling us that Scripture is sufficient for us. So that's a New Testament passage, and I think it's one of the strongest uh, ones on the regular principle. If we are adding to what God says, we're denying that it's sufficient for one of the most important works that the man of God is responsible for
4: doing. Mm-hmm.
0: Amen. All right. Anybody else?
4: Okay. In that case, uh, let's